Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. Stability can be used as like a very surface level outward proxy to a very deep inward rooted neurological process. Mobility is a prerequisite to stability. We have to be able to get into these positions of structural instability because our structure can indicate our function. Hey, Bettys, welcome back to Better with Dr. Stephanie. This week, I have a fantastic conversation with Dr. Jordan Shallow. He is a chiropractor, a competitive power lifter who champions getting movement right from the outset. So as you might infer, we talked a lot about hypertrophy and muscle hypertrophy, injury assessment and injury prevention. And we talk quite a bit about the different levels of mobility and stability, which is uh, just another word for proprioception, which you've heard me say on the show before. So we get into the weeds in terms of the different classes of feedback going up to the brain and the theory, and I would say it's not a theory, it would be um, neurophysiologically true that muscles are a sensory organ. And we go through the Golgi tendon organ, the muscle spindles, the cerebellum, center of mass, flexibility and mobility, and how we can assess our upper and lower body prior to load, so prior to putting the barbell on your back or prior to getting on the bench press, do you have the stability and coordination from the joints and the ligaments and the supporting structures in order to load those muscles? So this episode is technical in nature. It is uh, going to be very useful for you though. However, in assessing, giving you some tools for self-assessment in the gym. And as I talk about on the show, you know, at this, at least this point for me, injury is at this point, a non-negotiable. The game right now is staying in the game and not getting injured. So what Dr. Jordan shares is in my opinion, incredibly valuable for you. If you are someone who is into resistance training in the same way that Maybe if you go to Barcelona for the day, you don't need to learn Spanish, but if you are moving to Barcelona, then you better become fluent in the language in Catalonian. And I would say broad, broadly Spanish, the same is true in the gym. If you want to just join for a day, it doesn't really matter. But if you want to be a permanent resident of the gym, super important to be fluent in the language of proprioception, stability, training, range of motion, and MOBS. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation, part one of many, I'm sure with Dr. Jordan Shallow. I am a huge fan of the Bio-Optimizer's Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next 
level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health. The list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk, and my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. Dr. Jordan Shallow, I am just thrilled. I'm so excited uh, to welcome you to the Better Podcast. Welcome. Hi, thank you. Yes, Canadian chiropractor. Love it. <laughs> yes, yeah, awesome. Hi, pie, right? Uh, I don't know. That's a, that's a super Canadian joke, like pie's a form. Like, y'all, whenever we would do like high fives, we would all. Oh, really? Uh, that's a, mm, that's that never like, made its way out to the West Coast. <laughs> That's a CMCC thing. Y'all weird. That's a C- yeah, we are, we are weird. Yeah. Shout out to class of 2003. Uh, okay. So I wanted to dive uh, right in with you talking about injury prevention. Um, there are actually a lot of clinicians that listen to the show as well, both, you know, chiropractors, body workers, uh, physical therapists, et cetera, um, osteopaths. But I, I wanted to talk about injury prevention from the level of the, uh, we'll say someone who is engaged in a regular movement program. Hopefully there's, you know, obviously there's going to be resistance training in there. If you're someone who listens to my show for more than a minute, you know, that I'm a big proponent of, um, muscle health and musculoskeletal health as we age. But one of the things that I find is that we often, and maybe this is just the, the typical, let's say, uh, weekend warrior gym person. There's different levers of movement that we want to be thinking about 
working on. So certainly load, right? So progressive load, uh, mechanical load, more weight on the bar, let's say. But also, and this is where one of the reasons why I wanted you on the show was to talk about stability, which is a completely different adaptation than load. Uh, Proprioception, again, different. Mobility. And then I'm just going to throw in my own little beef here, which is training full range of motion. Because there's nothing worse than looking at someone who's getting on the leg press, which is a exercise that's designed for high output. And they basically take every plate in the gym and then their knees flex 10 degrees and then they've, and then they finished. So I'll, I'll just put my throw in my hat. Therefore, I also think training full range of motion is very important, but let's start with stability. Why is stability important? Why is it important as it relates to progressive overload when we're talking about hypertrophy and strength acquisition? Okay. Lots to unpack there. Yes. Uh, so let's start with stability first. Uh, from an outward facing perspective, stability is the likelihood, uh, or let's just say stability is our ability to resist force. That could be summed up as our a likelihood of something to fall over or not, which is like a common critique of stability as a uh, measurable training adaptation. And I think therein lies like the initial problem, especially when it comes to like, let's just call it like professional exercise prescription, whether it's uh, you know, from a rehabilitative standpoint or all the way up to like a high performance standpoint, you know, there has to be, there is not has to be, there is a subjective component that is overlapped with, uh, an objective tracking, right? So there's a subjective feedback to objective tracking that's meaningful, right? So that's essentially like the cornerstones of coaching is to be able to take what your client tells you and what you see, and then make better decisions faster off of those two intakes. So, you know, so how does that play into stability? Okay, so stability is our ability to resist force. Uh, stability oftentimes is measured subjectively. Like if I'm standing on one leg, does it look like I'm going to fall over or not? Now, <coughs> not falling over as bipedal ambulatory creatures is what makes us apex predators because falling over as bipeds makes us quadrupeds. Right? So when you see like, capable apex predators like let's say I, I think of bears for example like i i, yeah. I spent a major, majority of my childhood in newfoundland if you're in canada and, you know that this is this is a this is something to avoid it's a problem right <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's like problem. whenever i see a bear bipedal like standing on two legs it doesn't it's kind of silly looking like it's sort of like this goofy thing that's just like sort of waving looks like a teddy i think bear. of like yeah. yeah it's like it's like winnie the pooh so like not taking for granted the evolutionary biomechanical processes neurological processes that allow for us to be so successful at bipedal ambulation um really put stability i don't want to say at the forefront but it should put it high up on the list of things we should be paying attention to um, if things are unstable the likelihood that you're going to be able to uh, acquire skills uh is less and it drops precipitously. So the less stable you are. So like an easy example of this for Canadians would be like you, any good hockey player will probably like my parents put me in figure skating first because they, without knowing this principle, they understood that principle. It's like, but you don't want to teach him how to shoot first because he needs to be able to stand on the skates first. Right. So there's like a skill that has to, act as a prerequisite and that's and stability is the prerequisite to skill right knowing where you are in space so in a lot of ways we can use stability as 
a peripheral marker of like a very deep neurological process. So like the outward face of like, you know, stability, standing on one leg, not falling over, walking on one leg or, you know, walking in, or resting posture, your interaction with gravity. Like how is it that you organize your skeleton to not fall over with two legs? Like that could probably explain a lot of the way people present both static and dynamically, right? So stability can be used as like a very surface level outward proxy to a very deep inward rooted neurological process right because you mentioned a few things there that in certain when you look at them through certain lights you know yes they're venn diagrams um but some of their overlap is so strong that those two circles of the venn diagram become the same thing so as we think about stability stability and proprioception to me are kind of one of the same measure. One is like a really fancy word for the other. Uh, because when we look at, you know, let's, let's use like a single leg hinge, like a single leg RDL, or even like a walking lunge. The problem with resistance training conventionally, as we look at like a, a muscle, muscle focus is going to be the wrong word, like muscle center or hypertrophy centric training yeah. model, yeah. which trains muscles from insertion to origin, you know, uh, I would I would use the the moniker of progressive overstimulus rather than progressive overload um, because there are different types of training stimuli that can as a byproduct allow you to move more low. Um, but the idea of like when people look at resistance training, when we look at training like what I would call a muscle's action, like how a muscle behaves when we move it from insertion to origin, and we add resistance to that, we were kind of set forth on this path of really objective tracking. We go, okay, you know, whether it's like strengthening a rotator cuff, like next week, we're going to use the green TheraBand instead of the blue. I have no idea if that's a progression. I haven't had a TheraBand in my hand in a very long time. <laughs> but it's like that example would just be like, well, mm, is that the stimulus that that needs, right? Load is, uh, I would say load is a vehicle of stimulus. It's not in itself a stimulus. Uh, or it's not a stimulus in and amongst itself, right? These things aren't like mutually. And are you exclusive. talking about planes now? When you're talking about it's a it's a it, when you talk about load as a vehicle for stimulus, are you talking about as we're rotating about a plane, like coronal plane, frontal plane? Is that what you're talking about? No, I mean it more so like you know we can manipulate load to actually make things more or less stable depending on the parameter that we're lifting it, right? So for example. Like, let's stick with the rotator cuff. Uh, and I'm going to try and hopefully keep this on, on the tracks. And if I deviate too far, please let me know. So in the instance of the rotator cuff, and we go, right, we're training the muscles action. Supraspinatus is probably, well, not probably, supraspinatus is uh, more or less responsible for um, external rotation at zero degrees of shoulder abduction. When your arm's at your side and you're externally rotating, it's predominantly the infraspinatus fibers. Right, right. right. Um, and they're moving from like insertion to origin and they're getting like a little bit of resistance with the band and they're they're you know you're creating some level of like mechanical tension or tension in the muscle right so you're you're kind of training that muscle the infraspinatus to exert force which is fine there's utility in that but as we integrate the function of the rotator cuff on the whole the rotator cuff there's four muscles. It's supraspinatus, infraspinatus, teres minor, and subscapularis. Each one of those four muscles that make up the rotator cuff have an individual muscle action. So we talked about the muscle action of the infraspinatus, external rotation at zero degrees of abduction. Right? And it, 
it does a little bit more than that, but let's keep it simple. I'm pretty sure that was on the board exam and that I remembered it from by my little moniker, exit, external rotation, infraneteries. Continue. <laughs> Very well done. <laughs> just bringing, I, just bringing I, back I, my board memory you know, stuff. PTSD. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. So each one of those four muscles of the rotator cuff have an isolated muscle action, right? When I move supraspinatus from insertion to origin, you know, I'm going to be probably in the neutral scapular plane. I'm going to initiate abduction of the humerus on the scapula. So on, so on, subscap internal rotation, teres minor in the overhead, whatever. Collectively, that group has a function to resist force, right? And that's where the stability aspect comes in. And this is where stability acts as a very superficial moniker for a deep neurological process. So I think it might be useful now to like go a little bit deeper into stability and tie it into proprioception, because I think making this link and, and if we could do it effectively helps, helps highlight the utility of that style of training, right? So if we think about stability training, cause we do need to, and we will towards the latter half, put that in a bit of a box. Right. We'll put stability training in a bit of a box. And what I mean by that is, you know, there are conditions in which we're where which we can load where we think we're training stability, but we're not right. There's a frequency of stimulus that would classify as meaningful to training stability or proprioception as a, a separate adaptation. And it's it it gets a little bit complex, right? It's not necessarily being able to stand on a Swiss ball or a medicine ball, right? There's some very basic transferable skills that we can learn that will contain our pursuit of training stability as a separate adaptation. So from the outward facing, stability can be referencing a muscle's function or a group of muscles function in the case of the rotator cuff. It has to do with that muscle's ability to resist force and by action of being able to resist force and keep a relative joint or joints stable, what ends up happening is you get a feedback neurologically, which facilitates a sensory input that allows you to create what we call proprioception. Now, in order to accurately define proprioception, we need to take a look at the track within the nervous system that proprioception gets paired with. So primarily, it's a track called your spinocerebellar tract which takes peripheral sensory inputs of different kinds. In this case, proprioception is going to have a reference of two, three, depending on who you talk to, um, different type of free nerve endings. So we have proprioception with under, like if we're, if we're taking notes, we have like, I would write proprioception near the bottom and like I would leave three dashes underneath it for the three types of nerve endings that we'll talk about that each one is considered a proprioceptor. Is a lot of times these sensory inputs that fall within the spinal cerebellar tract get misclassified under, under different subheadings. So the three major subheadings are going to be proprioception, mechanoreception, and nociception. And if you're watching this on YouTube or Instagram or whatever, you're going to see me kind of go from the bottom up as I list those. So I would have in my little, like my little notes, I would have proprioception at the bottom, mechanoreception above that, and then nociception, or from the top down, nociception, mechanoreception, and proprioception. Now, nociception should be like fairly straightforward. Um, you know, there's kind of two types of pain, roughly speaking. There's like a faster and a slower. Yeah. And I think the important thing to note when we look at nociception in the pursuit of understanding the importance of proprioception is looking at transmission speeds to the brain, right? So if we look at like the slow and fast pain, 
I don't know, what are we looking at? Like zero to two meters per second and then two to 20 meters per second. So like slow pain is like, I don't know, 0.5 meters per second to two meters per second would be slow pain. And then upwards from two to 20 meters per second would be fast pain. And then you're like, oh, that's pretty fast, right? Like we think of Usain Bolt, I don't know, let's run 100 meters in 9.58 seconds, which means that, I don't know, max velocity is running 15 meters a second, 17 meters a second. So it's 10, 10 across 100. He's not running 10 meters per second at the right. beginning. So when he right, hits right. 70 meters, right? So he's probably running. So we're like, wow, that's like pain is really fast. And like fast pain would be like you put your hand on the stove and you pull it away. Like that transmission got to the brain really fast, probably at the high end of 20 meters per second. And you go, wow, that's interesting. And then we take a step further. So we kind of have no susception, fast and slow. It's sort of like organizing our notes. And then we have mechanoreception. Mechanoreception is really interesting, especially in today's fitness market, because mechanoreception, if I was a um, a health or fitness product distributor or manufacturer, I would be leaning in on this. I've tried to talk people, you know, talk to people in different companies with varying degrees of success. And I've had like some advisory roles with companies about this very topic. We look at the widely propagated fitness products recovery tools. Maybe that's a better way to word it. Yeah. You know, we see things like, um, you know, vibration or percussion instruments. We see things like, uh, kinesiology tape, foam rollers, um, lacrosse balls and the like. And I think too often these, which these products will, will, will file their, let's call it mechanism of correction under the subcategory of mechanoreception. Um, with again, the end goal, keeping in mind that we're going to talk about proprioception and its role with stability. But I think organizing this linear, uh, this linear ascension of importance, air quote importance, um, of sensory inputs in the body will allow you to better prioritize or understand why stability is an important adaptation to train. So mechanoreception, there's like four major free nerve endings. Uh, Merkel's disc, Pacinian corpuscles, Ruffini endings, and Meissner's corpuscles, right? So these are cutaneous and subcutaneous um, uh, free nerve endings, which means like they're kind of at the level of the skin and just beneath the skin. And uh, activated so with depression of the skin, like pressure, things like that. Yeah. Deep pressure, light touch, vibration, and skin stretch, right? Yeah. So, and not what one is exclusively one or the other. One is more than the other, right? So like, some some can actually be found in bone. So obviously, like the deep pressure one is found in bone. Because if you just think about it logically, like I have to push in pretty deep on my skin to get down to the level of the bone. Yeah. And that's where, like, you know, we look at ma even manual therapies, like I don't know, trademark active release technique or something along those lines. That's where we might start to see, like, hmm, people really tend to gravitate to like foam rollers and lacrosse balls. Why might that be? It's like, well, of all the other stim like skin stretch is a really elusive one, right? Because like if I can move my arm over my head, I'm probably getting enough adequate stimulus from the free nerve ending that relays the transmission of where like my shoulder is based off of the stretching of my skin as I move my shoulder in the overhead. If we think about someone who has a shoulder surgery, maybe they're not getting that. And that that sort of like that signal that goes up to the brain is kind of offline where well, let's take some kinesiology tape. And let's give that stimulus externally so we can start to activate that free nerve ending as it as it becomes part of this linear ascension of uh, of sensory inputs into the brain. Right. So like if you know to categorize those free nerve endings by stimulus, we're gonna look at, like I said, deep pressure, light touch, vibration, and skin stretch, which is like okay, vibration, very common. Like vibration plates. I don't know if anyone remembers walking through like malls. 
and they're like a little and they're you'd still see them. you go to like hotel gyms maybe you still see one or two kicking around but they're there they don't adequately or or accurately represent the mechanism of correction but there is a value to it these these products keep resurfacing like a shake weight like oh jesus christ oh, like, what are we doing here but it's like there's something there and what is there is not mechanical and i think that's where people lose the boat is like the brain makes a lot of sense or it, it doesn't make or it makes sense if you don't think about it if you go oh shake weight causes like a bunch of little muscles to contract it's like well they're not muscles right like we've seen uh, miser's core muscles or, or pacinian core muscles or merkel's discs or miser's core muscles like they're not muscles so like you know something is if i'm selling something in a mall kiosk and i use like a really quick tagline like that it makes sense if you don't think about it but if you think about it you actually realize that like the real mechanism is actually way more interesting and you can understand then how to effectively apply these these true mechanisms of correction because a lot of times people just do everything right like oh i'm going to tape it and then i'm going to use a theragun and then i'm going to use a lacrosse ball it's like okay like there might be a place for that can you get your arm over your head sure it's like maybe you don't need the tape right because you're probably getting enough skin stretch as it is and not to say any one of those is in isolation like if i use like an instrument assisted soft tissue mobilization tool i'm probably getting deep pressure and skin stretch right and maybe even some vibration depending on like the velocity of sort of the stroke of the instrument so there's those four things are really interesting now in kind of tying it in with no susception no susception as we said before slow and fast top end speeds 20 meters per second right so that's going to get to the somatosensory cortex at 20 meters per second when we get up to levels of proprioception now we're talking like 75 meters per second right so we're like twice as fast that's super interesting right like our body finds it more pertinent and you can make like this is the this is a, a precondition to making this argument is you have to accept the fact that things that move faster to the brain are more important to the body that's like a precondition to this to this understanding and then like i always make the example of have you ever eaten so much food and you get like you're like oh my god i've made a big mistake because satiety is such a slow response because historically i mean not in recent history but like historically across you know the evolution of the human being across time eating yourself to death was not a very common cause of death right so it's like the body probably doesn't prioritize bringing that to the forefront of our attention so i mean that's a bit of a reach but that's a precondition to understanding the importance of all these it's like hmm, interesting these mechano reception, these mechano receptors, and these different instruments are get to the brain faster than, let's say, like nociception, which then leaves proprioception. Yeah, the thing we wanted to talk about 15 minutes ago. Proprioception is another category, not to be mistaken with mechano reception. And there's primarily three under that category. One is going to be the Golgi tendon organ reflex, which like a lot of people have probably heard of. The second is going to be the muscle spindle reflex which is probably lesser known. And the third, you could throw joint capsules in there if you choose. Now, <coughs> excuse me, when we look at muscle spindles, and that's where I want to focus my attention as it pertains to proprioception, because when we, you mentioned something earlier, and it may have been off air, but it's something that I'm a firm believer of, and not believer, and it's not like the tooth fairy or something. It exists regardless if you believe it or not. It's proprioception. Um, proprioception is, or sorry, muscles, are sensory organs right I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of that because we under or i understand how a muscle spindle works for a long time when we looked at training different muscle fiber types we were talking like type 2 or type 1 or type 2x or whatever 
they usually change that usually came down to like what fuel source uh, and how fast metabolic states yeah. right right you know anaerobic glycolytic things like that but i think there's a more important a more important differentiation uh for muscle fiber types that's not you know metabolic availability or affinity to use certain energy sources or whatever and that's the difference between what we call an interfusal muscle fiber and an extrafusal muscle fiber, which is basically the difference between a muscle function, as we talked about before, and a muscle's action. So a muscle action would be calling on what we would call the extrafusal muscle fibers. Extrafusal muscle fibers are the fibers within a muscle that run from tendon to tendon. They're the contractile elements of that muscle. So those are the things when you are doing your banded external rotation um, to strengthen your rotator cuff, that's really what we're calling on. We're calling on those extrafusal muscle fibers that run from tendon to tendon and create sort of that stretch shortening cycle that allows us to externally rotate concentrically and then relatively internally rotate eccentrically against load. That's half the battle. Muscle spindles, and why I, I kind of like always aim my theoretical target at this particular proprioceptor is muscle spindles are actually the most abundant sensory receptor in the body. So there's 50,000 there's 50,000 muscle spindles. Oh, we're ballparking this round up to the nearest whatever. But there are 50,000 muscle spindles in the entire body. The only thing more depend or the more the only thing we depend on more than our muscles for sensory input is our eyes, right? Like other than I don't know, peregrine falcons and snow we have owls. What 600 muscles ish? Let's round up 600 yeah. muscles. Like so there is one muscle spindles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There is one omission. There is actually a meaningful omission that none of these are in your face. There's no muscle spindles in any muscle in your face. Right. So when we start to then, okay, let's tie this back into the fiber types. We have extrafusal muscle fibers. Those are contractile elements of muscles. If you're looking at like sliding myofibular theory and things like that, that's where that stuff exists. When we look at the other type of muscle fibers, which are interfusal muscle fibers, these are basically synonymous with muscle spindles, right? So muscle spindles, I think of muscle spindle like a finger trap. So when you were a kid, I don't know, like the second grade or whatever, you put like a finger trap on someone else and you just sit there trying to pull your finger apart from this other kid and your like teacher gets mad at you and they put you in separate sides of the classroom and all that. That's how a muscle spindle kind of works where it's like this coiled, it's this coiled nerve ending that goes around an interfusal muscle fiber. And as muscles begin to stretch and shorten, there's a reaction as it begins to stretch, the coil, just like the finger trap, kind of relays tension around the sliding uh, interfusal muscle fiber. And it do- as it does so, it goes to the respective cord level of that particular muscle. And then two things happen. One, there's a motor output right back to the extrafusal muscle fibers within that muscle that the sensory input came. And two, there's a sensory input that goes up to the brain, right? So you kind of, I, I would make the comparison or I make the comparison that it's a little bit like how motion capture works so if anyone who's ever watched like lord of the rings or has ever played like a sports video game right like you i don't know fifa or something like that anytime we use like motion capture and there's someone in a sound stage in like newark new jersey wearing this like lycra suit with a bunch of little ping pong balls all over it that's essentially how our our mechanoreception and proprioception system works but rather than running to a central processor like a computer it runs to a central processor like our brain so the caveat with proprioceptors or the thing that makes them a little bit more uh interesting uh, you know well it allows us to prioritize them more is we we paid attention to speeds so we're like look no susception as a review zero to two 
0.5 to 2 meters per second up to 20 meters per second for fast pain. Fast pain, slow pain. Mm-hmm. Mechanical reception, 75 meters per second. And then all the way up to proprioception was like 120, 130 meters per second, right? And that gets to the brain like very quickly, right? Almost twice as fast as the thing that was three times as fast as pain. So all to say, it's like your body really wants to know where it is. It, and in order to improve performance and in order to learn the skill of exercise, you need to know where you are to begin with, right? So that's where, when we look at like kind of how to bring this, this full not circle. Under, I, have to, I have to just interrupt. This is not under conscious control either. So that's why movement is so incredibly complex and why we're spending the time talking about this. Because if you are... Your, your, and we'll, we'll get to maybe autonomics, but we'll just say your, uh, you know, neural control and the feedback loops that are happening that you've described with the interfusal muscle fibers up through uh, spinal cerebellar, if I remember uh, correctly, uh, back, is it spinal cerebellar? You got it. Yeah, yeah. I hope it is. Yeah. Spinal cerebellar back up to the brain that is happening before you, before you get stuck in the hole in a squat. You know, so you have to, you, you have to understand and we have, and we'll, we'll come back to stability. I know you're making, I know you're making the case and closing the loop, but just to make sure that all my listeners are still, are still with us here. It's important to note that if you, m- most of a lot of movement I'll say is unconscious. So you have to understand the unconscious piece of it first in order to, to help develop protocol and programming so that we can, so that we can progress. Yeah, the, the autonomic nature of this is the key differentiator between strength and stability. Because if I'm doing you know, uh, this cable external rotation, banded external rotation, we need to think about like, well, what are the, where are the marching orders for that movement coming from? It's like, well, that's probably like a pre and primary motor cortex. Like that's like a motor pattern, which is like if we, a way we think of motor pattern is like a zip folder. Like if we're trying to, we have a computer full of, I don't know, like podcast files, which are like these massive 4K, massive audio files. It's like you would need a computer the size of my kitchen to like save as many podcasts as I'm sure you and I do. But if I had to send one to you or you to me, you would compress it in a zip folder. Right. So if you can, when you zip it, you compress it and that file with a ton of data kind of takes up less space. We kind of have that in our brain. Was so there pre and primary motor cortex kind of keeps our motor pattern and, and uh, maybe this, I don't, if I go down this road, this is going to be seven parts of this episode. So I'm going to kind of like, sh- I'm going to, I'm going to kind of stop myself from going for too far. But when we look am, at I that, I am trying not to salivate with all of the juicy nerdiness in here. So yes, please, please do keep going. So when we look at that, we go, okay, there's a, like a very basic zip folder in my brain for shoulder external rotation at zero degrees of abduction of my shoulder. Right. Mm-hmm. But so that's a that's a conscious forethought. I go over to the cable machine or the band, I attach it and whatever, and I start doing the thing. So the sensory input that I get, like the feeling I get in my muscle or where I see my hand or feel my hand to be as a byproduct of that rotation started from the brain. But like if I take a, I mean, what would be like an almost an analogous hand? If I take like a, a kettlebell and I like just put it over my head, right? And we understand like, look, stability and strength are separate adaptations because they progress across different indices or indexes, right? Like one is linear and one can be linear. The fact that we just add more load, right? We just take the pin and we put it up the thing. The other is a combination of direction of net forces between center of mass and base of support, right? So like if I take a kettlebell and I put a kettlebell like over my head and I kind of like, you know, watch my arm kind of like oscillate around and like falls or if I grab it, like bottom under is like a really easy way to kind of uh, conceptualize this because yeah. you can clearly see how the base of support and center of mass are deviating. 
my shoulder, my rotator cuff as a whole is functioning to resist force. And I see that kind of conversation between the brain, the brain and the hand, the brain and the shoulder. And I kind of see this like oscillation. And some people might, you know, the kettlebell might like fall through the hands. Like, oh, like my palms are sweaty. It's like, no, they're not. Like, it's not your palms. It's just the fact that your shoulder is unstable and it mm-hmm. decreases your ability to exert force distal to that instability. So what ends up happening is like when we're holding a kettlebell over our head, those minute muscle contractions that are like manifesting in this like oscillation of the shoulder trying to keep, you know, I compare it to like having a broomstick under your, the palm of your hand and you're just trying to like keep it balance like this as it kind of like teeters off yeah that contraction or those like micro on off contractions of the rotator cuff and accessory muscles like you know deltoid and bicep and tricep and serratus and so on those are all starting at the level of the muscle that's all starting from the finger trap you know my arm deviates too far this way what ends up happening is like well that infraspinatus or you know the infraspinatus and teres fiber and probably lower aspects of subscap fibers are stretching right? The intrafusal fibers are stretching like, oh, okay, like this is going in the direction we don't want it to go. Those muscle spindles around are sending a motor reflex through to that respective level back to the muscle to contract the extrafusal to shorten it, bring the shoulder back into like relative alignment. While simultaneously, there's a thing going back up into the brain, up through the spinal cerebellar tract to the cerebellum going like, hey, here's where your shoulder is in space. And it was in the wrong position. Because after a while, like you just, it's, uh, I like uh, in research, you might see the term neural sharpening or like neural polishing. Quite like that idea because it's the pathways are there just as you train them, they become sharper. They become quicker. You know where your body is a space, right? Like I, and it allows you to start to improve performance. Like imagine, I don't know, imagine walking down the hallway with your eyes closed or with the lights off, you're not going to move fast, right? You're going to have trepidation. You don't want to run into a wall or whatever. But if I like go take my trash out in my building and I have the lights off, it's like, it's going to take me way longer to get there. Cause I'm like, Oh, do I, I don't want to step on anything or is there someone coming or whatever. But when I flick the lights on, I could run there, which is not going to be fast, but it's going to be faster than if I have the lights off. So it's like proprioception kind of illuminates parts of your brain primarily your cerebellum and goes, yeah, this is where you are. Feel free to move within this range and let those extra fusal fibers do whatever. Cause we kind of have this, like this understanding in the brain, this, this illuminated space for us to move in and out of these positions, knowing that we can resist force at the end ranges of these positions. That is so good. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna it's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount. That is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. 
All right. So let's, let's, let's keep going here a little bit. So when we're thinking about stability, what are some of the, I've heard you talk about, um, so even, even if we continue with the, with the rotator cuff example, um, can we, um, or I'll say, how does playing with center of mass, um, impact this. So for, you know, when you're bringing your hand up and you're, you know, you're, you, you see the, the road, the, the arm shaking a little bit, and there's that interfusal, uh, communication to the brain back down to the extrafusal uh, muscle fibers. How can we then, um, continue and maybe this is just a, a question around the neural sharpening or the neural quickening. How can we begin to manipulate variables like center of mass in order to improve that? Or is that something entirely different? Well, I think it's useful to know when the adaptation is sufficient. Like you don't want to just sit around sharpening your sword all day. And it's hard. It's hard because it's so task dependent. um, And it's so outcome dependent. Like I'm going to stick in the realm of muscle hypertrophy and strength. To me, I would look at this endeavor of like, okay, what is the most realistic loading parameter that elicits the stimulus that I want? So I can see how I respond to it because it's, it's not a constant. It's it's a fast adaptation, as we discussed, right? Like these things can can kind of these things get to the brain quickly. Before you like they're there, <laughs> right? Exactly, literally. Yeah. But you know these the sharpening can can be dull, or the polish can be dull. I don't want to say as quickly, but for so I guess the answer to my question is I, I don't want this to turn into a separate endeavor. Like I want to bring this back into focus. Like what's the point of this on the whole? Like the point of this is to allow this, allow your joints to have as much internal stability as possible so that we can drive as much output as possible. But like, for example, I remember one of the first personal training clients I ever had was at good life fitness in the mall in Windsor, Ontario. And I had the person doing a, probably the same workout that I did an hour earlier. And the first exercise was a dumbbell overhead press. Seventh rep, second set, boom, dumbbell right to the head. But it's like, Mm -hmm. because they're moving into an unstable position. And then one of the exercises I did later was an overhead dumbbell tricep extension. And it's like, well, they couldn't organize their humerus over their head with a 10 pound dumbbell. And I asked them to extend their elbow with a flex shoulder position. It's like, well, what chance in hell would they have to organize that with a 30 pound dumbbell in the exact same position, right? So it's like there, you need to be able to draw effective borders around the intervention of stability. And I think the goal should be like, Hey, can you do like a kettlebell windmill? Can you do a bottom under press? Can you do it with like a meaningful amount of load so that the deviation center of mass, you know, attribute a stronger extrafusal muscle contraction as a byproduct of the interfusal sensory input. Great. Then go lift weights after that. Go do the dumbbell because I don't like when I do dumbbell shoulder overhead press now, as I don't know, someone that's been training for 17, 18 years, that's almost my stability work now. I don't need that stability concentrate anymore because when I take, I don't know, whatever dumbbells I have over my head and there is a little bit of wavering, the deviation of center of mass is magnified by the amount of load. And so I'm still getting stability working, but I'll walk into the gym as a warm up, grab a kettlebell, throw it over my head. If I can't put a 35 pound kettlebell over my head, I'm not going to grab, I don't know, a 60 pound dumbbell or an 80 pound dumbbell or a hundred pound dumbbell. So there's no point. I, I don't have the, the essence or awareness of that specific adaptation, but I can get it. I can do three or four reps of that and be like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm good. Right. It doesn't turn into like a kettlebell overhead pressing, bottom under pressing competition. 
I think that's where a lot of this gets lost is a lot of people begin to move the proverbial goalpost and just become like, try to be the most stable person on the planet. It's like, that's not, I mean, it might be someone's end goal by all means. Like, I'm not going to tell people how to train, but in most cases we want to figure out like, okay, like something like a good benchmark to aim for is like, yeah, some sort of kettlebell drill overhead position, right? You're in a structurally less stable position overhead and you're using an implement that is relatively arm. unstable. And and single, single arm. Yeah, yeah. Single arm. Yeah. And that's that's something mm-hmm. I wanted to highlight as well, you know, whether it's upper body or lower body. So we've been talking a lot about the shoulder, which of course has the most degrees of freedom. So by its very nature is going to be the most unstable joint. But I would also say in thinking about the lower body, thinking about the hips, we also want to be thinking about training. And this is something that I've learned very much from your work is the importance of single leg training. Like if I go in and I do like a one leg RDL, let's say, and I can, I feel my feet, you know, like I, I'm like completely like Pez planus, like I have no arch. I'm like wobbling like crazy. I'm, I'm, I'm pronating. Then maybe I don't go to the squat because the squat with two legs is absolutely going to hide it. And I'm probably going to hurt myself. And there's days where you know, and this is maybe just more, uh, uh, you know, the, the mental game of training, but, uh, you know, I'm in my forties now. And I think that the goal for me is to stay in the game, not to get injured. Right. So I think about, okay, what is my sleep look like? What is my stress, ma- stress management look like? How did I, you know, what have my kids been doing that I love or maybe not love so much that is like, you know, in the back of my mind somewhere that's, pre- that's not enabling me to, you know, get down deep into a squat in the right position, let's say. Um, so I, I wanted to maybe talk a little bit about, and, and maybe this is more of a slight uh, deviation in terms of injury assessment, but you just said something that I think is is so brilliant and I don't even think you realize it, or may, maybe you do, but you said, you know, I'll just walk in and I'll throw a 35 pound kettlebell over my head. And if I can't do that, then I'm certainly not going to go to the 65, let's say kettlebell or whatever I had planned for that, might've had planned for that day. So is there kind of a drill or are there some patterns that you test, let's say, uh, single arm, one leg before you progress to two legs or two arm, like a double, you know, a, a barbell overhead press or something like that? Yeah, if I, if I were to highlight, like, I mean, I like to call them gatekeeper exercises. Like I think of like Gandalf and Lord of the Rings and like puts his little staff down on the ground and goes, you shall not pass. It's like I kind of have exercises where it's like, like if I can't do these basic fundamental skills that give me you know a glimpse or some insight into my ability or my awareness of my position of my body in space i have no business loading into that because all that's going to tell me is that i'm going to be loading disproportionately into you know soft tissue structures rather than muscle and it's like well that's not i'm not in the in, i'm not in the interest of like catching a labrum pump i'm not in the interest of totally. you know catching a right like a, a scapula throw or an sc yeah, name it yeah, right yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. like it's to me, it's just a bit of a gatekeeper and that it's nice. So I have two for each and they're analogous to one another. And I think they follow a consistent pattern that I think is useful So the upper body. And it might be, I'm going to backtrack a little bit and, and I know I get wordy, but I think it's useful to, to understand the why behind things. So it's like, I'm going to show my work, if you will. The upper extremity works a lot like, um, so I'm going to use a, a, something that's way out of my scope of practice and way out of my field of expertise, but it reigns true with how I understand upper extremity movement. And it's like a Bohr diagram. If you remember like grade 11 chemistry, we went through like a similar high school system. 
like Bohr diagrams are just like pictorial representations of anatomic models of elements. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, we have like uh we have a I don't know. We have like a little a circle that's a nucleus, and on the first valence we have two electrons Electron, and the valence after yeah. right. And the next valence after that, we fill it with eight, and then we keep filling these things until we have like these massive, I don't know, you're in like terbidium or plutonium or something like that. Um, but like I would look at the upper body and go, okay, well, the nucleus of upper extremity mo- movement is going to be the diaphragm. The first valence is going to be the rib cage, the second valence is going to be the scapula, and the third valence is going to be the humerus. Um and you, you carry that. You can, can you carry that, that all one the more way. Time? Say that one more time. That was so good. So that so the nucleus is the diaphragm. You said. Yeah. So the yeah. the nucleus of upper extre- of the upper extremity or movement of the upper extremity is the diaphragm. Yeah. The first valence is the rib cage. The second valence is the scapula, and the third valence is the humerus. Um, so if we understand that, we can then start to pick exercises that accurately kind of assess for. Mobility, because mobility is a prerequisite to stability. We have to be able to get into these positions of structural instability because our structure can indicate our function in some cases, right? Our goal is to out-function bad structure, but you know, certain certain uh, structural permutations, like I, I don't know, I, I worked with Shaquille O'Neal last summer, and he's six or seven foot two. It's like we can improve his squatting pattern to a point. Right, because his structure will indicate his function. Structure doesn't dictate function. Right, everyone tries to just go. Well, he's seven foot two, seven foot three, four hundred and ten pounds. Well, just we like got your genetics, three. your genetics don't dictate what's what. It's it's sort of what happens above the gene, how you how how the gene lives. Yeah. Right. So it's and that's like I guess it would be the epigenetic expression of movement is what we should be after. And I think too right. often we find ourselves confined by the structural uh, uh, framework that someone might be presenting with. So. Mobility does play a role, all to say. Mobility is a big underpinning to this. So let's just say, let's look at two movements that I think, if there was a takeaway from this episode, other than just like endless biomechanical neurological diatribes, is uh, a kettlebell windmill, I think is super useful because it's going to, it's going to address, it's going to assess and in some ways address how well we can rotate our trunk and rib cage, right? So that's kind of like an inner valence assessment. Right. Like, can I can I have both my feet facing forward, hinge forward, and have you know create relative movement at each valence? And what'll happen in cases where it doesn't, and it's oftentimes that it doesn't, is I'll see a reverberation into an outer valence because I lack inner valence movement. Right. So if I can't effectively rotate, you know, each rib cage, like my right and left rib cage, kind of successfully to get into this position where my then scapula can like downwardly rotate and then I can get my arm over my head. I'm going to see a lot of people kind of like dump that shoulder forward, but it's not a shoulder problem. It's a rib cage problem, right? So I like, um, I like that assessment tool of, uh, a kettlebell windmill, for example, because if you know what you're looking for, you can, you, you can accurately assess, you know, the inner valences quite well. And then I like the kettlebell bottom under press because it gives me just a better vantage point at the outer valence in isolation, right? Because I could do a windmill and be like, wow, like it's manifesting at the the glenohumeral joint and I'm over-rotating. It's like, well, is that the... Because I've seen people who can't do windmills but can do bottom under press. So I know it's an inner valence problem and not an outer valence problem. Because right? when I test the outer valence in isolation with a bottom under press, so like I don't know, slight scapular like protraction... Keep your wrist in line with your elbow, press overhead, and allow for like an arc 
of internal rotation to occur, which is to say, like, look, the palm's going to be facing my face at the top or at the bottom of the movement, sorry. And at the top of the movement, the palm's going to be facing the wall in front of me. That's 90 degrees of rotation. Right? So that's how we actually train the function of the rotator cuff, through this long arc of flexion, not this, like, mm-hmm. short arc of so you know arbitrary it's a rotation. Issue, then. It's a rib cage issue, then, if the, pa- if the patient can... Let's yeah, say, yeah, 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 exactly. That's yeah. So that's the reverse engineering those two things. If they can do that, but not the first one, we have an inner valence problem. And if they have, if they can't do either of them, well, we probably have an inner and outer valence problem. So start at the inner valence. But then we can go back and like, all right, let's do like T spine rib cage breathing drills. Let's do scapular drills. Let's do glenohumeral drills, things like that. So you can subcategorize these and we could do an hour just on exercise taxonomization. So that's like a bit off to the side. Um, and then for the lower extremity, we understand those relationships, upper extremity, lower extremity, obviously we're going to function a little bit differently because we walk on our feet and not on our hands. So our, our ilium uh, and sacrum SI joints are going to differ in structure function relationships to that of our scapulothoracic joints and our glenohumeral joints. But ultimately we're still kind of looking for the same thing, right? So when we look at lower extremity, I would say something like a single leg RDL and like a, what I would call like a hip airplane are going to be two useful starting points to kind of see like, okay, can we get into essentially the goal in the upper extremities? Like, can we get into flexion and external rotation of the shoulder with a neutral rib cage? With the lower extremity, it's can we get into a position of extension and internal rotation of the hip with a neutral pelvis? That's kind of the goal. If we really, if we really, if we put every movement assessment that that's validatable and reliable and reproducible. And we put them under a factor analysis and we took out all the names of all the people who like and made them up. And we just like, Hey, what, what are the things like a factor analysis is like, uh, how are the, how are things more alike than different? So like the, the easy one is like personality. It's like, if you ever describe someone's personality, like, Oh, they're like joyous and happy and jovial and all this. It's like, well, it's kind of the same thing. Those three things are more alike than not alike. Right. So if we put all these assessments in like a factor analysis, you kind of come back with those basic command line functions, upper extremity function. What are we looking for? Flexion, shoulder, external rotation, neutral rib cage. That's like basic shit. Now we're going to need internal rotation for certain tasks and challenging certain muscles and, you know, different things. But for most people, that's probably a good place to start. Lower extremity. What's the bore diagram for the lower extremity? So on the upper, it's like diaphragm is the nucleus, rib cage, scap, humerus. And then what would be the bore diagram for the lower body? Okay. If we wanted, it's going to be slightly different. And I actually change my, I change the answer is going to be gait cycle mechanics. The reason being is because the difference in pelvic structure and the amount of stability, and you alluded to this earlier, the amount of stability we have at the pelvis, just in the, you know, how strong the SI joints are or how strong they, they're really the lumbopelvic network of ligaments are. That's going to change because I wouldn't, a low resolution image if we just said hey if the upper extremity relationship is diaphragm rib cage scap and uh glenohumeral joint or uh, humerus it's 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 unscientific of us to just go well pelvic floor or pelvic yeah. diaphragm you can't no 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 you don't play those games it's that's too where our body doesn't that might be no it's not even true if we were if we were yeah, quadruped that would be oversimplified and right yeah so there's nuance there's i I would like i call these like different rule books essentially like the rule book of rib cage mechanics is ventilation and the rib and the rule book of lower body mechanics is ambulation Ambulation. or walking yeah yeah yeah. right Mm -hmm. so understanding some basics about the structure function relationship of like locomotion is important like there's 
we'll see what needs to be highlighted as we go through the two exercises, because I'm sure people are probably more interested in the takeaways. Single leg RDL is, is going to... The key point of gait cycle is force production. Force absorption and force transfer are kind of arbitrary. Not arbitrary, but arbitrary relative to the importance of force production. And there's so some things for, that just have for to my listener, Just for my listeners, when we're talking about gait, we're talking yeah. about walking, right? You're right. going to have one foot planted, one foot's going to be in swing phase. So when we're talking about an RDL, let's say, or single leg, pardon me, RDL, we are mimicking the, let's say, like the one foot planted phase. So what happened, what has to happen with like glute max, glute med, you know, what has to happen in terms of stabilization of the joint. I think we're about to talk about uh, planes. We may or may not, but I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll follow you there. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's yeah, a good context to have for the relatively uninitiated. So as you kind of alluded to, there's a swing phase, which is 40% of gait cycle. There's a stance phase, which is 60% of gait cycle. And then there's a point in which gait cycle, we have both feet on the ground. We call this the double support phase. And that's kind of bookends either cycle, right? Because we look at one leg as we lead into the next. So if I'm going to be, you know, if my goal is performance, and my goal is always performance. Even in rehabilitation, my goal is performance. Performance is a proxy by which we make decisions, right? So we're, we're not going to rely on anything other than that. Um, then I need to see, well, okay, force production is a key component to performance. So gait cycle can teach us the efficient structure function relationship by which we naturally produce force. Now, it's not the only way we can produce force, but it's the preferred way our skeleton works with our muscles to produce force. So if we look in like the middle of the stance phase, which we call mid stance, real straightforward, we have to look at like the mechanics there and be like, okay, what, what is happening in mid stance? Well, what classifies mid stance and walking is like the peak amount of force production in gait cycle is the ability to actually be on one leg, right? Because if I can't be on one leg, I, I, I mean, I can produce force up and down, but I can't, I can't propel myself. So as we move into mid stance, we actually need to move our pelvis through the frontal plane. We need to move it side to side because if I can't move my pelvis side to side, I just keep both my legs on the ground. I need to kind of adopt and sway my center of mass over my new limited base support. I need to be stable as I go on one leg. That's why I like the single leg RDL because if we look at the single leg RDL and there's a lot to assess on a single leg RDL, I want to make sure that this movement starts to load frontal plane muscles. So I want to feel this in like the lateral aspect of like the gluten med. I don't want to feel this in the hamstring. Anytime we're on one leg, it's a frontal plane movement. Because in order to get on one leg, we need to move the pelvis through the frontal plane. So if you feel a single leg RDL in your hamstring, you're not carrying your center of mass efficiently over your base support. You're probably carrying it way forward. Right? That's why like your hamstring are kind of pulling to, so you don't fall over, right? Trying to keep you stable through the, the what we would call the sagittal plane. So as we go into a single leg RDL, what are we assessing? I would say the most useful piece of information you're going to want to look for is a few things. One is going to be be mindful of the position of your back foot when you can no longer see it, because that will give me some in, insight into your, into your proprioception, right? Are your muscles acting like sensory organs or are you very visually dependent, which is like majority of people. And thank God we are like our eyes do such a good job at filling in the gaps that the sensory component of our muscles don't because they haven't been trained to. For example, anyone right now who trains at a commercial gym and squats in front of a mirror 
turn around next session. You'll realize very quickly that you don't know how to squat. You know how to fix your squat. That was because always part of my rehab. It was like, good, you can stand on one leg. Now close your eyes and do it. <laughs> like always yeah, take out and, the visual. Yeah. And well, and that's, see, that gets tricky. And that's like another bit of a it radical. Does. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's another podcast. Yeah. There's vestibular ocular yeah. reflex. There's all that in there. There's the yeah. vestibular canals, blah, blah, blah. But yeah. Okay. Let's, let's, let's stay here. Let's stay here. Oh, so, okay. All right. Okay. So I, I very, know there's so much. I want okay, you back yeah. on the show. Like there's so much more I want to unpack with you. But okay. So we're at, um, so you just Single said. Single leg RDL. Single leg RDL when you can no longer see your back foot yeah, or the, the stabilizing foot. Yeah. Yeah. Or your back foot. So when the foot's in the air, oh, where me, does it go? Me. Cause yeah. a lot of people, when they, hmm. when they go into a single leg hinge, what happens is the second the foot is out of their sight, they stop extending the hip. It's just dead to them. It just doesn't exist. Right. So if I'm like, have my plant foot leg on the ground, I'm trying to drive my back leg into the air as I go through the single leg hinge. First thing we want to look for is like, does the back foot actually go towards the air? Like I want, if I have my arms like straight down towards the floor as I hinge, I want my fingertips to approach the floor at the same rate that my toe on the back leg leaves the floor. We kind of just have this like teeter totter effect. Most people can hinge effectively from the upper body or from the waist up, but not that inverse teeter totter effect from the waist down because they can't see it. Right. The second thing we're going to look for is actually going to stay fixated on that back leg. Right. So as we look at that back leg, what we're going to do is we're actually going to look at the position of the foot. And I want to, I want you guys to kind of see like, there's so much data to collect. There's so much input, but knowing where to look makes your job so much easier because your job, I mean, as even if you're just a, you know, an avid, as Gabrielle Lyons would say, a NARP, a non-athletic real person. I think <laughs> I use that correctly. A what? A I don't NARP? know. It's a, it's a term that she made up. A NARP. If, that if you were like not a, a kid or like an adult cop or something, what am it I sounds thinking? bad. Yeah. Oh, you're thinking of like a NARP. A NARP. That's what a I'm thinking narc, of. Yeah. A narc. Snitch. <laughs> uh, so your job is to, I mean, your goal should be to make better decisions faster. So knowing how to synthesize information, knowing where to look is really useful because of like, well, I want to look at the back foot, but the back foot isn't the thing I'm concerned about. But if someone does a hinge and their back foot is facing like the other side of the room, this is a fail, or this is something that needs to be intervened on. And this is where most people are going to are going to end up. Because what will happen is they, they go into a single leg RDL, and they're going to sort of adopt this ex, this fixated, externally rotated hip position. And the easiest way to notice that is then in, in the other foot that's just along for the ride, the toe is going to be facing the sidewall rather than staying down to the ground. Right. If I can put my pelvis in a position where my hip extension keeps that back foot pointing towards the ground, I know in order to do that, I've moved my pelvis through the frontal plane. So I create internal rotation of the stance like hip, which is how we produce force. So if I see someone, hey, go stand on one leg, hinge. And they're like getting up onto their toes. I feel it in my hamstrings and their back foot is two inches off the ground. It's like, well, this is like a pretty concentrated view at their strategy of producing force. If I put them on a leg press, it's like, well, how much how much force are you producing with the muscles we want you to produce it with? If in a very what should be simple task and a repetitive task, a task like this, I this will give me some insight of how you produce force daily, right? Like every you know one every one of your ten thousand steps, I guess half of your ten thousand steps on each leg would give me some insight. It's like, oh, you're not you're not really you're not loading a path of least resistance that's through your strongest muscles. So by proxy of like just training a single leg RDL and making it more stable for those, like if someone presents as we just outlined and the back foot like opens up and it's like, you know, four inches off the ground and they feel it in their hamstring and their heel comes up and they're unstable and they feel like they're falling over. It's like, well, this is too much, right? This is useless. This is like, you know, giving someone the 
who benches 400 pounds, a 600 pound bench press. It's like, this is overstimulating. There's, there's no adaptation to occur here. There's just failure. So it's like, well, if we understand, like, look, it's not about strength. It's about stability. Well, how do we progress in regress stability? It's like, well, we need to either deviate center of mass or centralize center of mass or broaden or limit basis support. So it's like, well, I'm just going to give them two dowels to hang on to. Because right? in the current parameter of like the net vectors of, or I mean, net vectors, vector being like force with direction of them trying to accommodate for where their center of mass is and where their base support is on one leg is too much. They, we're not getting into the positions that we need to. It's a 600 pound bench for a 400 pound bencher. It's overstimulating. There's no adaptation to occur. So if someone, let, like, me, well, let me interrupt you for one sec. So if someone is, you give them a single leg RDL, the leg is flaring. So we have this external flare. You would at that point say this person does not have the capacity for load bearing activities with, would you say, would, would, is, is that an accurate assessment? Would you say this person cannot, they are weaker than the forces of gravity acting on them? Um, it would or, limit the way I approach their training in externally unstabilized environments. That would be my big caveat. So like if someone stands on one leg and does a single leg hinge, they're probably not in a position proprioceptively to be able to coordinate a complex movement like a high bar squat. Right. But also put them on a leg press because I know what they lack in proprioception and stability. They're just going to gain by the external environment of the leg press itself. And it's a which really great tool output, to get. Which is more like an output design. Like you can, this is why I was saying at the beginning, like some guy wants to do like a thousand pounds on the leg press and like take all the plates in the gym. And then often it's like they move two centimeters, but whatever, we'll... You know, but that, but that, but I, I can never squat. Let's say I can never barbell squat what I can do on leg press. Like I always feel like Wonder Woman when I get off the leg press. And then I always feel like, my God, I can't even like, you know, 45 plus 45 equals 135. And you know, that's like the math. There's a few things to unpack there. Like one is obviously like the Archimedes principle of the slope of the sled of the leg press, right? So like a 45 degree leg press is going to be uh, harder than a 35 degree leg press, which is going to be harder than a 90 degree squat, right? So the, the vector is right. meaningful, but also, yeah, like the, and the, the squat is such an easy example for this because in a general principle, stability equals output. Now, whether that stability is internal or external is the key variable here, right? So in a, a squat, a proficient back squatter will likely have the adequate or will have the adequate internal stability at, and the, here's the tricky part. There's so many joints to stabilize, right? There's, the more acetabular joint, the sacroiliac joint, and then all the joints of the spine into, you know, thoracic mm -hmm. up into the cervical, even shoulders, right? Yeah. So there's so much, there's so much demand for muscular co-contraction that takes away most people's capacity to do both things effectively and have the bottleneck be the capacity of the muscles they're directly trying to train, which would be like glutes, quads, and adductors in a squat. Right? So most people are going to be bottlenecked by their inability to sufficiently co-contract all those other muscles that are going to stabilize all those other joints I just listed. So when they squat, they fail with because their knee comes in or they fail because their chest caves forward. That's just a sign that like they just don't have the coordination, the the reserve neurologically to have those to have those joints be supported internally. Right? So there's like a few things to unpack, but yeah, like I would say a high depending on like you know anthropometrics to a certain degree and like joint positions like a high bar squat and like a hack squat or a front squat and a hack squat are just like an output version of another and i think we have we have an aversion to programming these things simultaneously where i think it's like the number one thing you could do with a novice client or athlete is 
you know, it's not uncommon for me to go, okay, let's try and bring this full, full circle, do a single leg RDL. Well, that was terrible. So let's practice this. I'm going to give you two dowels and I'm going to cue you into the position that I want, right? I need you to feel it in the glute. I need your chest to be parallel to the floor. I need you to not fall over. I need you to maintain whole, maintain whole foot pressure. I need you to have adequate uh, ipsilateral hip extension. Great. Let's practice that for a bit. You're not ready for any sort of advanced squatting pattern, but you probably are ready to integrate these into a regress squatting pattern. Let's counterbalance squat. Okay, you know, let's elevate your heels, give you a weight out front. Maybe it's super light at arm's length. Maybe you're really detrained and it's a TRX strap. Maybe it's, and I've done this before. I've had people hold on to my hands. And it's like, all right. And I, you know, and I've had people the reverse band squat. I put like bands from the top of squat racks under their armpits so they're lighter as they get into the 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 weakened position. Mm. You know, these are all things that I just need to I need to put I need to put a piece on the board so we can play it. But then immediately after that, I'll put them on a leg press and I'll reinforce very similar mechanics at the pendulum swing of the hip, the knee, and the back, and I'll just load it. Now, mind you, like I might be loading their counterbalance squat to like 90 degrees to start. And then it's, you know, full depth within a few weeks. And then it's goblet squat after that. And then it's, you know, a front squat after that. And it's high bar after that, because all I'm doing is just deviating center of mass. I'm making these things uh, slightly more stable to drive more output. But on the front end, I want to make sure that I have the muscular support autonomically to make sure I can maintain these positions of my skeleton under these heavier loads. So my skeleton doesn't have to, right. And then after I, I progress that skill, I then train output in a similar pattern. Now, because I can practice squatting with a novice client five times a week. I put them on a leg press maybe once or twice, but it's like I can just drive a ton of output and it helps reinforce that skill. And so the so, progression yeah. is more one of complexity. Yeah. Let's say yeah, an integration, right? Yeah. I mean, that is, again, we need to contain these things. It's not linear. It's not runaway. Like once I can get someone to do like a single leg RDL and a hip airplane and do those in succession without falling over, it's like, that's it. Great. You've put your joints in relatively unstable positions. You've created relative motion. You've maintained, you know, whole foot pressure. You can, re you can, uh, reduce shear forces at the spine. You've, you've crossed that off the list. Great. Go lift weights. And I like, I don't know. I, I got off a, I flew 72 hours in, I don't know, two weeks. What a play. What did I do? 26,000 kilometers in the air in like 13 days. When I, you know, when I go to lift after flying from Bangkok through Dubai to Miami and spending 30 hours on a plane, I stand on one leg and I look like a, you know, a, a baby deer on roller skates. I was like, well, I'm not going to squat until I can do this because right. my squat will start to load into some of those inert soft tissues, as you mentioned, meniscus or SI joint or hip labrum or lumbar spine, intervertebral disc, whatever. It's like, so I'll either do it until I can. And then start squatting, or I'll do it until I realize it's like, oh, this ain't happening today. And then I'll hop on a leg press or, or a hack squat. It's like understanding how the external environment controls the internal environment is like a really, it's subjective, but it's not. It's just, it's, it's, it's the job. It's understanding like how to interpret performance and infer the internal state. So you can vary the external state accordingly to get the greatest amount of, you know, skill acquisition as well as the greatest amount of output like there's two there's two there's two bookends to training there's not two i mean there's a fucking kaleidoscope of ways you can look at training but i think a, a, an axis to always consider is the axis between skill and output and there's always going to be ranging presentations based off individual like 
I don't know. I could do a bicep curl in my sleep. I've done, I don't know. I spent majority of my high school days doing bicep curls, but uh, you, uh, me looking at that and not being physically empathetic to someone who never picked up a weight until their mid forties or fifties, you know, I don't, or I didn't realize that a bicep curl was a skill until you watch someone do it wrong. And like, how, how, how did you do that wrong? Right. So it's like, well, now I need to create a, a, an index of exercises that progress the skill of elbow flexion. Right. So it's just like understanding that that that's ever present. The external environment is really going to dictate the parameters and the expediency by which we can learn. And that's where the sensory and the proprioception come in because this is like, we're not training, it's motor learning. And the only way you can, you know, the only way I can learn Mozart is if I know what the first couple of keys are. And I need to know that in theory, right? I need to know this from like a cognitive perspective. I need to know it in an associative perspective and I need to know it in an autonomous perspective. And I need to be able to walk someone through that when it comes to exercise, right? Because that is like the fundamental basis of skill acquisition. And those initial movement notes really come from that proprioception. So we need to be able to isolate that as best we can, equate for it. And almost like tune the body in a sense that like, and I, I think of this in the same way, like I, I played guitar for, I don't know, 20 something years. When I take my guitar off my wall, I tune it first because the F note is only the F note if the E string is tuned to an E string, right? Like if someone can't control their center of mass properly, their squat's not a squat, it's a deadlift with a bar on their back, right? So we just kind of need to tune them and it's quick. And that's the best part about motor learning is these things happen so quickly. It's like, and these are the prerequisites to long-standing training adaptations that will all also happen faster if you have this base of motor learning and you respect that muscles are sensory organs, that proprioception is something that we can train or polish or sharpen, you're really going to set yourself up for you know, a, a very easy, not easy, but an, ex, an expedient motor learning process. I know we have a hard stop, so I am going to honor that. Although I must say that I have, there are categories of topics that we did not get into today. So if you would be so kind, I'd love to have you back on and we can actually double click on motor learning and performance and neuroplasticity, all the things. So thank you. I mean, this was so, uh, this was so useful. I do want in the remaining minutes that we have, I know that you have a certification course and if any, you know, if there's, I mentioned a lot of practitioners listen, uh, to the show, if you wanted to give that a plug, or if you wanted to just generally for the general public, for people, where can they find you? Where can they learn more about your work? Um, yeah, I mean, the usual point of contact is on Instagram at the underscore muscle underscore doc. Um, all educational material is at www.pre-script.com. Um, yeah, that's probably the easiest. Uh, we do everything from uh, applied biomechanics, functional anatomy courses, scale acquisition courses, um, you know, uh, muscle hypertrophy mechanisms courses down to, I mean, we have a nutrition arm as well. That's nutrition for sports performance, body composition. So yeah, a fairly full course calendar, um, just kind of everything centered around mechanistic understandings of um, the underpinnings of health and wellness. Doc, this was so wonderful. When I see you in person, we will do a high pie together and you'll be a super nerd with me. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so right. much. Thank you so much. And we'll talk to you very soon. See you later. All right. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. 
In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 